Jesus the Christ by James E. Talmadge Read by Bradley Ross The text of this book is available from Project Gutenberg at gutenberg.org Chapter 13 Honored by Strangers, Rejected by His Own Jesus and the Samaritan Woman The direct route from Judea to Galilee lay through Samaria. But many Jews, particularly Galileans, chose to follow an indirect though longer way, rather than traverse the country of a people so despised by them as were the Samaritans. The ill feeling between Jews and Samaritans had been growing for centuries, and at the time of our Lord's earthly ministry had developed into most intense hatred. The inhabitants of Samaria were a mixed people, in whom the blood of Israel was mingled with that of the Assyrians and other nations. And one cause of the animosity existing between them and their neighbors both on the north and the south was the Samaritans' claim for recognition as Israelites. It was their boast that Jacob was their father, but this the Jews denied. The Samaritans had a version of the Pentateuch, which they revered as the law, but they rejected all the prophetical writings of what is now the Old Testament, because they considered themselves treated with insufficient respect therein. To the Orthodox Jew of the time, a Samaritan was more unclean than a Gentile of any other nationality. It is interesting to note the extreme and even absurd restrictions then in force in the matter of regulating unavoidable relations between the two peoples. The testimony of a Samaritan could not be heard before a Jewish tribunal. For a Jew to eat food prepared by a Samaritan was at one time regarded by rabbinical authority as an offense as great as that of eating the flesh of swine. While it was admitted that produce from a field in Samaria was not unclean, inasmuch as it sprang directly from the soil, such produce became unclean if subjected to any treatment at Samaritan hands. Thus, grapes and grain might be purchased from Samaritans, but neither wine nor flour manufactured therefrom by Samaritan labor. On one occasion, the epithet Samaritan was hurled at Christ as an intended insult. Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil? The Samaritan conception of the mission of the expected Messiah was somewhat better founded than that of the Jews, for the Samaritans gave greater prominence to the spiritual kingdom the Messiah would establish, and were less exclusive in their views as to whom the messianic blessings would be extended. In his journey to Galilee, Jesus took the shorter course, through Samaria, and doubtless his choice was guided by purpose, for we read that he must needs go that way. The road led through or by the town called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. There was Jacob's well, which was held in high esteem not only for its intrinsic worth as an unfailing source of water, but also because of its association with the great patriarch's life. Jesus, travel-worn and weary, rested at the well, while his disciples went to the town to buy food. A woman came to fill her water jar, and Jesus said to her, Give me to drink. By the rules of oriental hospitality then prevailing, a request for water was one that should never be denied, if possible, to grant. Yet the woman hesitated, for she was amazed 
that a Jew should ask a favor of a Samaritan, however great the need. She expressed her surprise in the question, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus, seemingly forgetful of thirst in his desire to teach, answered her by saying, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman reminded him that he had no bucket or cord with which to draw from the deep well, and inquired further as to his meaning, adding, Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus found in the woman's words a spirit similar to that with which the scholarly Nicodemus had received his teachings. Each failed alike to perceive the spiritual lesson he would impart. He explained to her that water from the well would be of but temporary benefit. To one who drank of it, thirst would return. But, he added, whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water, springing up into everlasting life. The woman's interest was keenly aroused, either from curiosity or as an emotion of deeper concern. For she now became the petitioner, and addressing him by a title of respect, said, Sir, give me of this water, that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. She could see nothing beyond the material advantage attaching to water that would once and for all quench thirst. The result of the draft she had in mind would be to give her immunity from one bodily need, and save her the labor of coming to draw from the well. The subject of the conversation was abruptly changed by Jesus, bidding her to go, call her husband, and return. To her reply that she had no husband, Jesus revealed to her his superhuman powers of discernment, by telling her she had spoken truthfully, inasmuch as she had had five husbands, while the man with whom she was then living was not her husband. Surely no ordinary being could have read the unpleasing story of her life. She impulsively confessed her conviction, saying, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. She desired to turn the conversation, and, pointing to Mount Gerizim, upon which the sacrilegious priest Manasseh had erected a Samaritan temple, she remarked, with little pertinence to what had been said before, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus replied in yet deeper vein, telling her that the time was near when neither that mountain nor Jerusalem would be preeminently a place of worship. And he clearly rebuked her presumption that the traditional belief of the Samaritans was equally good with that of the Jews. For, said he, Ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Changed and corrupted as the Jewish religion had become, it was better than that of her people, for the Jews did accept the prophets, and through Judah the Messiah had come. But as Jesus expounded the matter to her, the place of worship was of lesser importance than the spirit of the worshiper. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Unable or unwilling to understand Christ's meaning, the woman sought to terminate the lesson by a remark that probably was to her but casual. 
I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Then, to her profound amazement, Jesus rejoined with the awe-inspiring declaration, I that speak unto thee am he. The language was unequivocal, the assertion one that required no elucidation. The woman must regard him thereafter as either an impostor or the Messiah. She left her pitcher at the well, and hastening to the town, told of her experience, saying, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Near the conclusion of the interview between Jesus and the woman, the returning disciples arrived with the provisions they had gone to procure. They marveled at finding the master in conversation with a woman, and a Samaritan woman at that, yet none of them asked of him an explanation. His manner must have impressed them with the seriousness and solemnity of the occasion. When they urged him to eat, he said, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. To them, his words were of no significance beyond the literal sense, and they queried among themselves as to whether someone had brought him food during their absence. But he enlightened them in this way. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. A crowd of Samaritans appeared, coming from the city. Looking upon them, and upon the grain fields nearby, Jesus continued, Say not ye, There are yet four months, and then cometh harvest? Behold, I say unto you, Lift up your eyes, and look on the fields, for they are white, all ready to harvest. The import of the saying seems to be that while months would elapse before the wheat and the barley were ready for the sickle, the harvest of souls, exemplified by the approaching crowd, was even then ready, and that from what he had sown, the disciples might reap to their inestimable advantage since they would have wages for their hire and would gather the fruits of other labor than their own. Many of the Samaritans believed on Christ, at first on the strength of the woman's testimony, then because of their own conviction. And they said to the woman, at whose behest they had first gone to meet him, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Graciously, he acceded to their request to remain, and tarried with them two days. It is beyond question that Jesus did not share in the national prejudice of the Jews against the people of Samaria. An honest soul was acceptable to him, come whence he may. Probably the seed sown during this brief stay of our Lord among the despised people of Samaria was that from which so rich a harvest was reaped by the apostles in after years. Jesus again in Galilee, at Cana and Nazareth. Following the two days' sojourn among the Samaritans, Jesus, accompanied by the disciples who had traveled with him from Judea, resumed the journey northward into Galilee, from which province he had been absent several months. Realizing that the people of Nazareth, the town in which he had been brought up, would be probably loath to acknowledge him as other than the carpenter, or, as he stated, knowing that a prophet hath no honor in his own country, he went first to Cana. The people of that section, and indeed the Galileans generally, received him gladly, 
for many of them had attended the last Passover and probably had been personal witnesses of the wonders he had wrought in Judea. While at Cana, he was visited by a nobleman, most likely a high official of the province, who entreated him to proceed to Capernaum and heal his son, who was then lying at the point of death. With the probable design of showing the man the true condition of his mind, for we cannot doubt that Jesus could read his thoughts, our Lord said to him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. As observed in earlier instances, notably in the refusal of Jesus to commit himself to the professing believers at Jerusalem, whose belief rested solely on their wonder at the things he did, our Lord would not regard miracles, though wrought by himself, as a sufficient and secure foundation for faith. The entreating nobleman, in anguish over the precarious state of his son, in no way resented the rebuke such a captious mind may have found in the Lord's reply but with sincere humility, which showed his belief that Jesus could heal the boy, he renewed and emphasized his plea, Sir, come down, ere my child die. Probably the man had never paused to reason as to the direct means or process by which death might be averted and healing be ensured through the words of any being, but in his heart he believed in Christ's power, and with pathetic earnestness besought our Lord to intervene in behalf of his dying son. He seemed to consider it necessary that the healer be present, and his great fear was that the boy would not live until Jesus could arrive. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and went his way. The genuineness of the man's trust is shown by his grateful acceptance of the Lord's assurance, and by the contentment that he forthwith manifested. Capernaum, where his son lay, was about twenty miles away. Had he been still solicitous and doubtful, he would probably have tried to return home that day, for it was one o'clock in the afternoon when Jesus spoke the words that had given to him such relief. But he journeyed leisurely, for on the following day he was still on the road, and was met by some of his servants who had been sent to cheer him with the glad word of his son's recovery. He inquired when the boy had begun to amend, and was told that at the seventh hour on the yesterday the fever had left him. That was the time at which Christ had said, Thy son liveth. The man's belief ripened fast, and both he and his household accepted the gospel. This was the second miracle wrought by Jesus when in Cana, though in this instance the subject of the blessing was in Capernaum. Our Lord's fame spread through all the region round about. During a period not definitely stated, he taught in the synagogues of the towns and was received with favor, being glorified of all. He then returned to Nazareth, his former home, and as was his custom, attended the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Many times as a boy and man he had sat in that house of worship, listening to the reading of the law and the prophets, and to the commentaries or targums relating thereto, as delivered by appointed readers. But now, as a recognized teacher of legal age, he was eligible to take the reader's place. On this occasion he stood up to read, when the service had reached the stage at which extracts from the prophetical book were to be read to the congregation. The minister in charge handed him the roll or book of Isaiah, 
he turned to the part known to us as the beginning of the 61st chapter and read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Handing the book to the minister, he sat down. It was allowable for the reader in the service of the Jewish synagogue to make comments in explanation of what had been read, but to do so he must sit. When Jesus took his seat, the people knew that he was about to expound the text, and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. The scripture he had quoted was one recognized by all classes as specifically referring to the Messiah, for whose coming the nation waited. The first sentence of our Lord's commentary was startling. It involved no labored analysis, no scholastic interpretation, but a direct and unambiguous application. This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. There was such graciousness in his words that all wondered, and they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Jesus knew their thoughts, even if he heard not their words. And, forestalling their criticism, he said, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. In their hearts, the people were eager for a sign, a wonder, a miracle. They knew that Jesus had wrought such in Cana, and a boy in Capernaum had been healed by his word. At Jerusalem, too, he had astonished the people with mighty works. Were they, his townsmen, to be slighted? Why would he not treat them to some entertaining exhibition of his powers? He continued his address, reminding them that in the days of Elijah, when for three years and a half no rain had fallen and famine had reigned, the prophet had been sent to but one of the many widows, and she, a woman of Sarepta in Sidon, a Gentile, not a daughter of Israel. And again, though there had been many lepers in Israel in the days of Elisha, but one leper, and he, a Syrian, not an Israelite, had been cleansed through the prophet's ministration, for Naaman alone had manifested the requisite faith. Then great was their wrath. Did he dare to class them with Gentiles and lepers? Were they to be likened unto despised unbelievers, and that too by the son of the village carpenter, who had grown from childhood in their community? Victims of diabolical rage, they seized the Lord and took him to the brow of the hill on the slopes of which the town was built, determined to avenge their wounded feelings by hurling him from the rocky cliffs. Thus, early in his ministry, did the forces of opposition attain murderous intensity. But our Lord's time to die had not yet come. The infuriated mob was powerless to go one step farther than their supposed victim would permit. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. Whether they were overawed by the grace of his presence, silenced by the power of his words, or stayed by some more appalling intervention, we are not informed. He departed from the unbelieving Nazarenes, and thenceforth Nazareth was no longer his home.
in Capernaum. Jesus wended his way to Capernaum, which became to him as nearly a place of abode as any he had in Galilee. There he taught, particularly on Sabbath days, and the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he spoke with authority and power. In the synagogue, on one of these occasions, was a man who was a victim of possession and subject to the ravages of an evil spirit, or as the text so forcefully states, one who had a spirit of an unclean devil. It is significant that this wicked spirit, which had gained such power over the man as to control his actions and utterances, was terrified before our Lord, and cried out with a loud voice, though pleadingly, Let us alone! What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, commanding him to be silent and to leave the man. The demon obeyed the master, and after throwing the victim into violent though harmless paroxysm, left him. Such a miracle caused the beholders to wonder the more, and they exclaimed, What a word is this! For with authority and power he commandeth the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the fame of him went out into every place in the country round about. In the evening of the same day, when the sun had set, and therefore after the Sabbath had passed, the people flocked about him, bringing their afflicted friends and kindred. And these Jesus healed of their diverse maladies, whether of body or of mind. Among those so relieved were many who had been possessed of devils, and these cried out, testifying perforce of the Master's divine authority, Thou art Christ, the Son of God. On these, as on other occasions, we find evil spirits voicing through the mouths of their victims their knowledge that Jesus was the Christ. And in all such instances, the Lord silenced them with a word for he wanted no such testimony as theirs to attest the fact of his godship. Those spirits were of the devil's following, members of the rebellious and defeated hosts that had been cast down through the power of the very being whose authority and power they now acknowledged in their demoniac frenzy. Together with Satan himself, their vanquished chief, they remained unembodied. For to all of them, the privileges of the second or mortal estate had been denied. Their remembrance of the scenes that had culminated in their expulsion from heaven was quickened by the presence of the Christ, though he stood in a body of flesh. Many modern writers have attempted to explain the phenomenon of demoniacal possession. And beside these, there are not a few who deny the possibility of actual domination of the victim by spirit personages. Yet the scriptures are explicit in showing the contrary. Our Lord distinguished between this form of affliction and that of simple bodily disease in his instructions to the twelve. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. In the account of the incidents under consideration, the evangelist Mark observes the same distinction thus. They brought unto him all that were diseased, and them that were possessed with devils. In several instances, Christ, in rebuking demons, addressed them as individuals distinct from the human being afflicted, and in one such instance commanded the devil to come out of him and enter no more into him. In this matter, as in others, the simplest explanation 
is the pertinent truth. Theory raised on other than scriptural foundation is unstable. Christ unequivocally associated demons with Satan, specifically in his comment on the report of the Seventy, whom he authorized and sent forth, and who testified with joy on their return that even the devils had been subject unto them through his name. And to those faithful servants he said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. The demons that take possession of men, overruling their agency and compelling them to obey satanic bidding, are the unembodied angels of the devil, whose triumph it is to afflict mortals, and if possible to impel them to sin, to gain for themselves the transitory gratification of tenanting a body of flesh, these demons are eager to enter even into the bodies of beasts. Possibly, it was during the interval between the rebuking of the evil spirit in the synagogue and the miracles of healing and casting out devils in the evening of that Sabbath that Jesus went to the house of Simon, whom he had before named Peter, and there found the mother-in-law of his disciple lying ill of fever. Acceding to the request of faith, he rebuked the disease. The woman was healed forthwith, rose from her bed, and ministered the hospitality of her home unto Jesus and those who were with him. Amen.